Ante Up is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But Ante Up is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. Ante Up, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's October 28th, 2016. You're listening to the best PokerCast on the internet. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. So, you're not using hyperbole here at all, right? Um, let me look that up. Is that, okay, is look that up. the same part of the dictionary with anonymous? Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> uh, we have a... No, I don't know if I'm using hyperbole. I just know that uh, my Facebook feed blew up with this, and then when I, you know, I, every day I'm checking for new items for the show, and it was, like, on all of my feeds. So, okay. Um, so if that's hyperbole, then I'm guilty. All right, I just want to make sure, because we... We've all seen hands like this a million times before, but it's it's the person and the attitude that created this sort of hysteria in, in the poker world of people just being crazy about this hand, right? Is that, that- yeah, exactly. So uh, I believe it was a Tuesday night's broadcast of the World Series of Poker, and it was a hand between um, trash talker Will Kassoff, mm-hmm. yes, um, and my old manner Blue Jays fan Griffin Banger. And Kassoff had uh, pocket kings, Banger had pocket aces, and apparently this Kassoff guy, part of his shtick is just needling you verbally. You know, mm-hmm. you know like Negrano does that all the time, but always seems like an air of niceness to it, right? Yeah. Even if it is annoying. Uh, this guy just seems like a jerk. <laughs> okay. So eventually the point uh, in the hand, uh, when it went on for a couple minutes, and Banger just lost it, just lost it, just started calling him a verbal baldy and asked everybody at the, at the table to confirm that. And then Castle, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and he knew exactly what he was talking about. And um, ended up, uh, they ended up getting it all in, of course, which we knew he would anyhow, uh, regardless of all the trash talk, the hands probably weren't going to happen that way anyway. And the ace is held, and uh, all the players, myself included, who desire civility in poker, have rejoiced. <laughs> I have to admit, when I watched it, I had a pit in my stomach when the cards were coming. Yes, because you knew the king was coming, right? Yeah, you wanted to see, you wanted to see the aces hold, and, and they did. They did hold up, but the you know sorry if we have to do spoiler alerts here, but this is something that happened in the summer, and so I can't you know protect you any longer. And if they aired it on Tuesday, so uh, yeah, the ace is held, but yeah, you're just your stomach because you don't know what happens when they're like, hey, this is the end of the century, you know, you know, so you're like, oh, he's gonna have to win too to make it worse, and he doesn't win, so that I do rejoice with you, but the pit in my stomach was growing as I was watching it, <laughs> um, and I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this, I. You know, I applaud Griffin for standing up to him. And see, it's difficult if you're not somebody who is comfortable talking at the table when you're in a position of stress, you know, because you're afraid you're going to give something away, which is exactly what this other guy wants. But, of course, he 
read it wrong and got it all in and lost his tournament life because of it. So kudos to Griffin for you know not giving that off. But I I don't I don't I didn't get to watch the entire episode to know just how abusive this guy was or how much of a trash talker he was. I'm taking it on faith that they all said that. Right, right. right. You know, but. Um, you know, he's in it for his tournament life, too. He's trying to find out if the guy's got aces. In this one instance, if he wasn't a jerk the whole time and did this one thing, I wouldn't have thought it was a big deal. But apparently, it's it's something this guy always does. And so they just had enough of it. And a lot people weren't even shaking his hand at the end. Did you notice that when he walked around the table? Oh, yeah. I mean, right. They, they weren't even shaking his hand. And it was like, just get out of here, you know. Um but yeah, I think this sort of, like you said, opens up another whole conversation of how to act at the table. And some people use table talk to their ability, but where is that fine line between table talk and verbal bully, as Banger called them? Yeah, I think the most telling thing for me, and I don't know which player it was, but there's another player at the table at one point. You know, when, when Banger kind of lost it, that uh, told Kassoff, "Hey." Because uh, Kassoff was like, I'm just trying to get a read on him. I'm trying to talk to him and see what he's reacting. And uh, one of the other players at the table said, yes, but you've been doing that in the entire hand, and he hasn't said a thing to you. <laughs> so you're, it's not working. You're not getting anything out of it. You're just wasting everybody's time. And I think the clock was called at one point, right? So I think that's when it got in. But, um, and I guess that's my point. I'm like, you know, I, I, I admit it. I don't like people that talk in the middle of the hands. I certainly don't like any kind of bullies at all. Uh, particularly at the, at the poker table. Um, so, yeah, I'm predisposed to be on Team Banger here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there, that is a point that, you know, at some point, you um, when you keep needling somebody, and it's clear that they know what you're doing, and they're going to sit there like a statue until you're done um, to give up on it. I will interject here and say I disagree with two things that guy did, though. One... I don't care. It's still just two people in the hand. You're not allowed to say anything. I don't care. Yeah, that's true. And the other thing was, you know what? When the cast-off guy said, 90 grand is 90 grand, right? That's that's, And he says, that's the main event for the next nine years. Yeah. The kid, <laughs> But the kid struck a smile then. Mm-hmm. And it's like he got information from him, so he was cracking him. And I'm not defending this guy. The guy was a trash talker and really was just a pain in the ass. But I'm just saying, to say that he wasn't giving off information like that third player was saying, that's not true. He actually got him to smirk a little bit. And if he read that smirk as strong, he would have laid down the kings. It would have been monumental, and it would have worked for him, and he could have stayed alive. So that's the only thing I'm saying. But no, do I agree with... I don't like the way people play. I don't like... Well, you know, if you want to, like, say, hey, you want me to call? You want me... Okay, hey, you're getting a little bit of... But when it's like... That was like four or five minutes. It was yeah, brutal. And it was mean. Too. Yeah, it, it was mean. It, was it wasn't asking questions like, why so much? You know, all that kind of stuff, right? It yeah. was just mean. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure this guy is a jerk in real life. So this is what he does. And that's why it's worked for well for him at the table. And, um, but, you know, I just, I don't like those kind of people. And I like to see them get knocked down. And I'm glad he got knocked down. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And that was day seven. So that was like, that's it. I mean, that was, yeah, yeah. that's some serious. Yeah. You could have been a November Niner if you just laid that down. And so he got it. And that was good, um, but yeah, you know, I I don't agree with I don't agree with abuse. If if it's the situation you're talking about, if it's kind of like you're talking the situation out to yourself, or if you're just saying to this guy, you know, if he's willing to talk to you, then I don't mind it. But if he's just sitting there and he's not doing anything, at some point you got to give in. I but I, you know, 
to contradict myself, I mean, he he did get him to smirk at that ninety gray remark, ninety grand remark. I mean, that yeah, yeah, that was that was something that got him. So, but yeah, I can see why people were talking about it when I first saw it. I'm like, all right, it's Aces versus Kings. Why are we having this on the show? And then <laughs> just listen to this guy berate him, and for nothing. It's not like he was a jerk to him, and so he's like trying to get back at him, or he's just just trying to get under his skin so he can get information, and he's just going about it. I mean, for him, it works, I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, everybody does plays to their um, their strength, and that's probably his strength. It's certainly not my strength. I'm yeah. terrible at it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> me too. So you know, whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just a um, uh, celebration for the uh, the good guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was good. All right, so uh, not a celebration for a good guy or a celebration for a bad guy, depending on how you look at it. Um, a federal judge has ruled that Phil Ivey violated state gambling laws when he won $10 million of edge sorting while playing Baccarat at the Borgata, but the judge rejected Borgata's claims that Ivey committed fraud, and the casino uh, now has 20 days to outline damages it suffered, and um, I don't know how much more we need to say about this, but I, I, I thought it was important to put it on the show because we get flamed every time we talk about situations like this that are still working their way through the legal system uh, because we want to be very careful that we're not uh, convicting someone that hasn't been convicted yet, right? Right, right. And our, our listeners tend to never never really understand that. <laughs> so, you know, if we're talking about, well, why didn't you call him a cheater? Well, we can't really call him a cheater. But now I guess we could say, I don't know whether cheater is the right word, but uh, obviously he, uh, the judge believes he was... Um, a violator of the law. A violator of the law, right? <laughs> now, I didn't see... Uh, a couple of stories I read didn't really get into the distinction between that and committing fraud. Um, I'm going to guess it means that, obviously, the, the requests that he was making of the casino, uh, he knew were in violation of laws, but he wasn't doing it... Uh, it wasn't an elaborate scheme to defraud, I guess. Which, you know, if that's the case, and again, I'm just assuming, I haven't seen that, um, kind of parallels what this whole conversation was about, right? Right. That Phil says, hey, you know, uh, the casino's trying to get money from me, I'm trying to get money from them, I asked them for particular cards, particular dealers, and they provided them to me, and because I know how to manipulate that, and they didn't realize it, what did I do wrong? Right? Yeah. So... That's so what it seems like the judge is saying, hey, you knew that was wrong, um, but you, you weren't doing it to intentionally defraud the casino. I wonder what that 20 days to outline damages could be. Like, I, like what, are they, what kind of number are they going to come up with? Like, are they going to say, we just want our $10 million back? Can they ask for that much? Are they going to say we have damages beyond well, the $10 million? Well, it starts at the $10 million, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I would imagine the damages that suffered include legal fees and... You know, damaged reputation, or who knows what else. But um, I guess we'll see. And I'm sure there's appeal. There's always appeals, right? So yeah, I was gonna say you can always appeal too. So we'll be talking on this when uh, you have gray hair too. <laughs> so. Oh, I got him, buddy. <laughs> uh, but for at least at one point now, here we have a little more clarity from a legal standpoint as to yeah. uh, what happened in this case. Yep. All right, and then a new documentary series called Life of Cards has debuted on Insight Television, which can be viewed online at insight.tv. You know, one of those .tv. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Domains, right? Domains, yeah. 
Um, each 50-minute segment, uh, I'm sorry, each 50-minute episode goes behind the scenes of the life of poker pros, including Joe Hash and Vanessa Selps, Liv Bory, Faraz Jaka, Bertrand, Elky, Grosbelier, <laughs> Grosbelier, he never remember how to say this guy's no, name. No, I was just going to kind of mumble through it. Um, Antonio Espandiari, Daniel Negreanu, and Chris Moneymaker, of course. Unbeknownst to Scott, I erased all the names in there that he was going to have trouble with. <laughs> there, there were other names in there I knew he couldn't pronounce, so I just took them out on him. <laughs> I should have took out Grosbelier. I thought about it, too. But. You denied our listeners of their enjoyment. <laughs> oh, so this is interesting. I love documentaries. You know, I love them. I do. I'm a big documentary fan. I mean, I don't go out of my way to go looking for them, but if I see them on TV, you know, if I'm going through the guide or something, I'll stop and, and watch a good one or something. So... You know, this combines two of my favorite things, documentaries and poker. So I, I think I'll, uh, I'll enjoy these. So what have you gotten a chance to view any of them? Uh, I watched the, uh, the clips that uh, PokerNews.com put up. I didn't actually watch the entire episode yet, but, uh, but the clips I thought were pretty good. And you know, you know, I think here's the thing: is that we talked, to, we let off the show with the World Series of Poker uh, broadcast, which you know I think are kind of the gold standard in poker hand. Um, viewing for people who like to see hands, right? Yeah. Um, and I've kind of given up on that. It's just not my thing anymore, right? Um, but I, I'm with you. I'm a big documentary person, and it is. I, I do think it'd be interesting to see, um, uh, you know, an entire episode on one player and, and get to know them a little bit better, particularly if they show us stuff outside of the poker table. Um, so you know, it might it certainly will something I'll be willing to check out at some point. It's like those World Series segments on steroids, though. You know, instead yeah, of just a five-second, you know, five-minute little peer into their lives, this is a nice 50-minute thing. And, yeah, that'd be interesting. Because you get to see how they interact, how they live, what they go through. I'm sure all that comes out. And uh, the travel or, or whatever, I'm sure. And each one is going to be individual personality. You can only imagine what Antonio's would be like or, or Faraz Jaka's. He's got that, that business and stuff, too. So yeah, that should be pretty cool. All right, well, any updates? We all have a favorite poker room, and we want to hear about yours. So go to Facebook or Twitter and tell us your favorite poker room and why by using hashtag MyPokerRoom. This is our cover story, or at least that's our cover this month. Cover, yeah, yeah. And we wrote a little publisher's piece on it. You know, every once in a while, we, you know, we just like to do things like this to just let these poker rooms and their players... Tell us why they enjoy playing there and why they enjoy playing, and and I, I love when we do stuff like this because, you know, we're just trying to do stuff for poker, you know. Yeah, and we made it very clear in, in the published column that this is no contest, there aren't prizes or anything. This is just a way for you to show pride in the poker room that you like to play in, just like you know the college football team you support or the Cubs or the Indians, whoever you want to see in the World Series. Um, this is just the same way, just you know, show some uh, pride and. Um, and share it, and then maybe it'll it'll spur some discussions too. And um, you know, I hope at the end of the day, when people are if people are following this hashtag, they will um, uh, get to know some programs that maybe they haven't heard before, and there might be something interesting that they learn about them. So, and you know what, my dream is is to have it be a trending topic somewhere. <laughs> Ooh, trending topic. Yeah, I might have to get lucky on that one, but we'll see. <laughs> Maybe Donald Trump will uh, put out his My Favorite Poker. Trump Taj Mahal. Oops, sorry, close. And then it will trend, right? <laughs> okay, Melbourne Greyhound Park in Florida and Park West Sonoma in California are the latest poker venues to join our Restock the Shells charity food bank initiative, 
with Blue Shark Optics on January 16th. Also, Restock the Shelves logo t-shirts are available with all profits going to support SHARE in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and the Nevada SPCA in Las Vegas, so pets will have a meal too. For more information, visit anyupmagazine.com slash restock. Each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at anyupmagazine.com and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like they do, we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. This week's prize is a setup of J-Design playing cards, the official playing cards of Annie Up Poker Cruises, available at ClassicPlayingCards.com. Comes from our Ohio ambassador, Brian Bly. Yeah, first-time writer. Yeah, he says, uh, I was recently pondering a trip up to Falls View Casino in Niagara Falls. I normally play 1-3 cash games, but with a favorable exchange rate, I would probably be playing 2-5 up there. Think of it as a $1.51, game. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Uh, out of curiosity, I looked up the rake. They do a timed rake of $7, which is equivalent to five twenty-seven of U.S. dollars, every half hour. I have no experience with time rakes, and I, do, I don't know how much the time rake would hurt me. I usually play a tight, aggressive style. I don't care if I have to fold for two hours straight as long as the other players pay me off when I finally do get the big hand. It should come as no surprise that I generally do well in cash games and get my head handed to me in tournaments. <laughs> do you have any advice to offer with respect to time rakes? Does the Falls View game amount to suicide for a tight, patient player like me? Yes. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough. Uh, suicide might be a strong word, but yeah, it's uh, time rakes are, are the enemy of tight players. Uh, because, you know, again, he says, I don't care if I have to fold for two hours straight. Well, if you fold for two hours straight in a uh, raked game, guess how much rake you pay? Nothing. That's right, zero. Um, in this game, you are paying, uh, well, in Canadian, uh, $28. Or in U.S., $20. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know your stack is going to bleed more if you, you. So you have to be winning pots in a time rate game to to be you know winning. <laughs> it's going to cost you more because uh, it's money that you can't even compete for that's coming off your stack. So um, yeah, I would think if you're going to play in a time rate room, uh, I would uh, probably you know I, I guess it's tough to say to adjust your style of play because that could be more costly, right? Or more comfortable. Right. You know, all of a sudden, being aggressive because you want to beat the rake and you end up making mistakes that cost you more than ten dollars an hour. So I guess the ultimate thing is, if you have a choice between a time rake and a, and a uh, raked pot, um, that's the game you want to be if you're a tight player. Um, and if you're an aggressive player, I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, or matters less, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and if you don't have a choice, then yeah, I guess you gotta you gotta go in understanding that. So. You know, maybe you don't become aggressive, but maybe you become a little less tight. How's that? Yeah, absolutely. I think he answers his own question when he says, I'm somebody who's known to fold for two hours until I get the hand I need or whatever. And if 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 you've done that, then you know that's just way too much money to sacrifice to hope to win a hand that might get you that money back. You know, I mean, let's say if you're in a 1-3 game and you make it 10 and somebody calls and you've got 20 in the middle and then you make it 10 and they call and then they fold, they're going to take $4 from you on that one pot, you know? And then if you don't play for another half an hour, they're going to take $5 from you. If, if, if it was a half, you know, if you play for a half an hour, it's $5. So, I mean, that's a decent, a $40 pot is a decent pot when you're playing 
You know what I mean? It's not a huge pot, but it's a decent pot, and it's not enough. It's it's like you're you're still you're still not they're still not taking five dollars from you. You know what I mean? That's a decent pot. They're still not taking five from that pot. They're still only taking four if it's ten max up to whatever. So ten percent of forty is still only four dollars. So let's say you play one pot in a half an hour, and it was a forty dollar pot. Well, now you've got they took four out of a forty dollar pot. You've got thirty five dollars. You know, or thirty six dollars to the good, and if you didn't play anything in a half an hour, you're looking at five dollars off of your your stack. You know what I mean? It's it's just it just seems to me that the the paid when you're playing a game, and to me it seems counterintuitive too. They they when they they used to do this at Foxwoods, they I think they paid more the bigger the stakes because you know you're you're playing for right. more money, but it's like the bigger the stakes, the longer people take on their hands, right? And I would resent. You know, like somebody sitting there taking five minutes to decide on a hand. Yeah, like the, well, it's costing me. Man. Yeah, like this World Series hand we just had on the show. Yeah. I mean, if that that right there cost me four dollars, just watching that guy talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, there seems to be that sort of resentment. And we way back in the infancy of our show, we had our friend Good Sam Minatello on the show when he used to have time breakdown in, in Sarasota, and we had him on the show, and we we're like, dude. People just don't like the time break, and he's like, "No, it's great." And he's like, "I would rather not have the time break." He's like, "We'll make more money in the poker room." Good, but everyone loves to pay the money when they win a pot. Take the money from me when I'm winning. Don't take it from oh, me when I'm losing or something. Well, you know what I mean. Mind less. No, would mind less. Yeah, loves you, too strong. You push me two hundred dollars, and you're taking five out. That's fine with me, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but if I'm not playing, nothing, and, and you're I'm taking five, you five, that's a different. Story. Yeah, I mean, ten dollars an hour to play poker seems. You know, kind of tough to to fade if you're a tight player. If you're somebody who mixes it up all the time and you're playing for five, ten blinds, and you know the money that you're winning is gigantic, and if you you know that's t- different. But if you're playing one two or one three, that that seems like a tough thing to fade if you're a tight player. Oh, yeah, I think so. So I I agree with you. I I would either avoid it, or if you're comfortable loosening up, you know, then loosen up and play a little more often because if you're going to fold every for two hours straight. You're gonna lose. Come on, the losing end of that deal. Not to mention, in Canada, you're paying fifteen bucks for a jug of beer. You know, they, they don't even call them pitchers; they call them jugs. Wow. But so, I mean, you're just, you're just money's falling off everywhere. I mean, that, that free healthcare doesn't come cheap. <laughs> That's you, right. You get to pay in your, yeah. they pay in their taxes. <laughs> Find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game, and you're not sure what the proper ruling should have been. Email us at podcast at annieatmagazine dot com, and we'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo director of poker. Elliot Schechter tell you how he would have ruled. This week's prize is a copy of Rye Morrison's new book, Counting Cards in Texas Hold'em Poker, available on Lulu.com for 11 bucks. comes from Chris Spirito. What are your thoughts about the beginning of tournaments where they only open tables shorthanded? I was playing a satellite in a Connecticut poker room recently where they only sold five seats per table to begin. Here's the issue. They sell five seats per table, but there is no assurance that those people will take their seats as the tournament begins. Would it then make more sense to sell full or close to full tables? Once people took their seats, couldn't officials move players as they do during play at later levels? If a player shows up late, they could fill other empty seats. I know it may seem unlikely, but in a tournament starting with six five-seated tables, couldn't one table possibly have a single person seated at it, making it an unfair advantage? This actually happened, and I was the one sitting alone at the table. I collected about 500 in blinds as the dealer dealt hand after hand. All right, Lee, it says this, this situation you describe is the possible result of late entry and deeper starting stakes. 
Most players generally don't miss anything but a chance to get eliminated by showing up late, registered or not. There's no urgency to enter prior to the starting time and to be seated and to be ready to play the first hand. I'm guessing the tournament director opens six stables to start uh, based upon expected business levels relative to previous tournaments. While we can't make players sit down after they have registered, I agree that having only one active player at a table is amazingly unfair to the rest of the active players who are playing one another. In a situation, uh, I would use common sense and have the 30 or so players at four tables while two tables would sit dead. Will dealers ready to accommodate the 20 late players that show up every day? Yeah. It's it's a tough thing, you know. I mean, we're very fortunate that we have some really quality poker rooms around here, and we have a really good poker manager for our crews. So a lot of the stuff you don't usually see happening, or you know, they just they're really in tune with their market, and they do stuff pretty either flawlessly or at least there's a a flow to it that you don't even sometimes you don't even get to notice some of these things. That's how good a lot of our poker room managers are and and directors and stuff. So. But it is it is a tough thing. It's it's a tough it's a guessing game sometimes. Sometimes the guys don't show up, or sometimes the guys are late, or sometimes they're getting lunch, or or whatever the reason is. And it, this this can happen once in a while, but it's it's not the norm, that's for sure. Well, the other thing that's interesting about what Chris said is he, I collect about five hundred hours from blinds. Um, so what's interesting is TDA rules now. Um, I don't know if it's TDA rules or TDA recommendations. Recommendations. There's yeah. two of them. Right. Um, they're different. Um, uh, to not dealing to not putting chips out on the table until a player sits down. So you're always sitting down with a full stack. Now, that is different though when you've bought in already um, because now you've paid your money and you're in. So I guess that's what happened here is that there are people that actually didn't sit down but already paid, which is also interesting. Although, as Elliot says, really, you're only the, there, there's very little upside <laughs> to playing three handed. Um, and a pretty big downside, you get eliminated <laughs> if you get crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but I also think it's interesting that it, they only sold five seats per table. Um, and certainly taking Chris's word for it here, but that seems a little small for Small, me. yeah, a little. Um, yeah. You know, as I told him, you know, at Thunder Valley, um, a lot of their tournaments, they'll, they'll leave two seats unsold. So it'll be like the three and the seventh seat or whatever uh, they won't sell initially. And they'll fill up all the other tables with those. And then once all the tables are filled up that they planned for the tournament, again, based off of you know what they expected to have, then they start filling in people in those uh, three and seven seats, um, as well as seats that open up when people get knocked out. Um, and there now you're talking seven players um, at a table, um, which is not as good as nine, obviously, but operationally makes sense too. But certainly better than five, right? So yeah. You have less of a chance of having two people play heads up. Um, and interesting, you know, I had a couple back and forth with Chris on this too. Um, I told him I, I never do well in this situation because um, one, I'm always the type of likes to sit down because again. Uh, I'm playing poker for enjoyment, so I don't get any enjoyment by sitting at a slot machine or in my hotel room for an hour after the tournament started, right? Yeah. I paid to be in the tournament, and I want to play, so I'm going to sit down there. I'm always, for the most part, sitting down right when it starts, right? Um, but there have been times when I've been in the situation where it's like me and two other guys there, and it never works out well for me because, you know, strategically, I think, you, you know, you have to open up your hands. It's, you're playing three-handed, right? Yeah. 
So if you just keep folding, uh, you, you're, you're going to buy the blinds, even though it's twenty five fifty. So it's probably not that big a deal. Um, but so now I start to open up my range wildly and making moves. And now I'm getting into hands. I'm playing shorthanded, which I don't have a lot of experience with, and I'm not very good at, right? And then I end up instead of just losing my blinds, now I'm losing thousand, two thousand, three thousand unit pots, <laughs> three handed. Yeah. So uh, it, it definitely doesn't work out for me. So I, I can understand why, why why Chris was upset about it, and uh, hopefully it doesn't happen very often. Um, I just replayed. Hey, we're finishing off on O'Malley's move today. We're going to remind ourselves what happened in part one. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another O'Malley's Move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we are seated at a $1-$2 PLO8 home game. We're one of the better players at this table and have been throwing our weight around a little bit. We bought in for $200 and sit with $325. The game is 8-handed. The blinds post, under the gun calls, MP and MP1 fold, hijack calls, and we're in the cutoff with the Ace of Spades, Ace of Hearts, King of Hearts, nine of spades. Pocket aces double suited good, one way only hand bad. We still bump it to ten dollars. Maybe we can weed out a few lows. Everyone folds except the under the gun and we go to a flop with about twenty dollars in the pot. It comes down the ace of clubs, queen of clubs, jack of diamonds. Good news, bad news. Why couldn't our nine of spades be the ten of spades? The under the gun is a decent player, but has a leak in his game. He definitely plays too many hands. He started the hand with 175, and he leads out for $20. So, are we up against King 10? Is a call worth it? Or is this a raising situation? What's the move? I'm inclined to raise here. Uh, we have top set without the Broadway, so even if we are behind to the flop Broadway, we have lots of ways to win or tie this hand. And I want to use that insurance to get a read on where we are right now. Uh, this is uh, the advantage of PLO. Uh, we can raise here without getting shoved on and having to make a difficult decision. Uh, I might do a mid-raise to limit our downside if our opponent raises us with Broadway. And uh, also to give a hint that we have Broadway ourselves um, in case our opponent was bending with two pair. I'm calling. Um, quite a few Omaha experts like to point out that the real money in this game is made on the turn. If we reopen the betting here, and he does have Broadway, and we don't, obviously, um, he can make a pretty hefty re-raise, so much so that he won't be able to fold to another bet here. You know what I mean? I feel like, I think if we control the pot with a call and then sit the next card, see if we boat up, and we have position to make another controlled call if we miss and can see the river cheaper than if we had raised on the flop. The other thing, too, is if he does have that two-pair you mentioned, and we do just make the call here... The turn now, if we don't boat up, he might think we're just slow calling with Broadway, might slow down and give us a chance to boat up on him. But, you know, I mean, if obviously we don't, we're ahead of that, that doesn't really help us. But I'm just saying it, it gives us a chance to control this pot. And if we do boat up and then he bets out, then we can probably get all of his chips because at that point he's probably committed and we've boated up with his Broadway. So I, I don't know. I just feel like a call here to control the pot for one more street might be the the better play, but I can be persuaded to raise. I just feel like I don't want to be shut out of this either. Because there was some decent money in, right? We raised a 10, and it was 
Yeah, so 20's out there. So if we raise to like 40, now you can call that 20 and then go another 60 or 70 or whatever. That's a pretty decent size raise to us. And we only have a set. You know, and then we're wasting money because then we're calling it. I don't know. I feel like I feel like I call the right play here. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I was saying. This is why I like PLO because, you know, let's say you had Broadway and no limit hold him here. Um, if we reopen the betting, he can easily shove right away. Right. And then we'll put to a test, and we certainly don't want that here. I don't think. Right. right? Um, and you do a good point. I mean, you have to figure out the math on how the pots work. But at least I know in pot limit um, in this scenario, I don't think when you look at our, our stack sizes, I don't know. I don't think he can make it all in here. So, you know, at least we we take away the all in move. It's still going to get a pretty hefty. You know, even with the min race here now, that's more in the pot that he can um, I'll bet with. Um, but um, I guess I just wanted a little bit more information on where I was. Um, and the other interesting thing, too, is, and I thought I had written this, but maybe I, I edited it out, but, um, you know, there's it's unlikely that the low is going to get there, right, because there's two high cards. Um, and certainly we don't have a low, so we don't want the low to get there. Right. right. Um, but it, there was a small part of me that wants to get a little bit more money, and now in case he also has a low draw because now he's going to be more... You know, uh, particularly if he has two pair, um, he's going to be more likely to put money in if he's got a backdoor low draw. And then if we pick up another low card on the turn, you know, that's the kind of money that we can get in while there's still a chance. If a high card comes on the turn now, now the low is completely dead. So we we lose that opportunity to get any kind of low money out of him. Yeah. Yeah, because he could have something like King 10, Deuce Trey or something. You never know. Right, exactly. Double yeah. suited or something yeah. weird. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here comes part two. Hello again. I would like to keep the pot manageable, but maybe this is a raising situation, and maybe I make a mistake here, but I call. The pot is about $60, and the turn is the ten of diamonds. That works. Our opponent once again leads out, this time for 45 With two flush draws out there, I think this is when we have to come alive. We pot it, essentially betting enough to cover our opponent. He thinks for a while before finally folding. Until next time, I'm Malcolm O'Malley saying playing the high-only hands can work, but I wouldn't recommend it. I hope to see you on the felt. Alright, well, what we don't know is whether we left money on the table by not raising on the flop. Uh, since our opponent folded to our raise on the turn, it seems likely to me he might have called that flop raise that I wanted to make. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I wrote, I wouldn't want to have to be in a position where I have all of my chips in the middle needing to pair the board. So I still like that call, but would make a min raise on the end here when he, the, on the turn. I mean, I, if you make a pot size bet, you know, I mean, we've already got aces full, right? Is that what it is? Or did we make? No, no, no. The board didn't pair. We made Broadway, right? That's what it was. So we made Broadway. So at this point, we have redraw. To, I mean, I guess she could be afraid of a flush coming because that was the second diamond, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But you're right. The guy didn't have Broadway, and I don't know if he calls our raise with just two pair. I think a call might have been the right on the flop then, right? Because what's he getting out of the way for if, if you know what I mean? So he must have had uh, two yeah, pair. Yeah, I think, yeah. A raise I, I he folds. I think he had two pair. Either he had two pair or he was just making some really loose trying to steal the pot and doing it really poorly. So right. uh, I got to think he had two pair. So we got an extra 45 out of him. 
because we raised on that flop, he would have folded. Right, he would have known we had Broadway. He would have thought we had Broadway. He would have, he would have let go his two pairs. Well, that's true. Flop. I mean, so the min raise was he bet what twenty? He bet out twenty on the flop, and 20, we just and so, we just yeah. called. So if we would have raised it to forty, we would have picked up another twenty. If he calls, yeah, if he calls, right. Um, and then he doesn't bet the flop because now you've taken control right. of the hand, so, so he yeah, like checks so, that flop, that turn. I mean, that's true. So yeah, it's it's possible that we would have cost ourselves twenty five bucks playing it my way. Yeah. Or more, he might have called. He might have folded to your race too. Like I said, pre- after that flop, he might. If you make it forty or whatever the hell, yeah, because he bet twenty on the flop. You make it forty, he might just say, "I was, I was getting out of line and fold." He can only. I think he can only do that if he had nothing. Um, I think if he had two pair, I mean, for a min raise, you got to put that money in. I think because you got odds to to catch up at that point. Um, if we would have made it a pot size bet, that'd be a different story. I think so. Uh, I, I feel confident that we would have gotten that extra twenty out of him on the flop, um, but I don't. I obviously can't feel confident that we would have got any more out of him on the turn, including the forty-five that he bet here. So yeah, would you would you have bet out if you had Queen Jack there and it came Ace Queen Jack? Would you have bet the twenty like he did? Um, you mean if I had two pair on that? If, yeah, if you had bottom two pair on that board, because that's clearly Definitely probably not what he has. bottom on that one, because you know, again, in Omaha, especially in PLO eight, um, aces are just killers. I mean, you got to have an ace in your hand. So at that point, uh, I got to assume that I'm even with my two pairs behind, uh, or is if not behind, is certainly not a favorite to hold, right? Right. So if I have Queen Jack there, I'm absolutely not betting. I, I'm probably going to call. Uh, depending on what the bet is, but I'm not going to bet and try to get myself into a raising war. Um, now, ace queen, ace jack, uh, it's a different story. I'll probably make a uh, stab at that. It also depends on what my backups are, too. I mean, if that's the, if that's all I have, then that's a different story. But, you know, um, if I had a, two clubs in my hand, obviously, I'm going to do that. Um, or if I had a, you know, another Broadway card in there that could help me, then I'd feel a bit better. But, uh, but definitely not uh, naked queen jack. Okay, okay. I was just yeah. curious, and it would be it would be difficult for you to have that ace too, since we have two of them in our hand. That's yeah, the case well, ace obviously you don't know that. You don't know that as you're the other player, though. But yeah. you have to assume that you know if somebody's in a hand in Omaha eight, it's because they have an ace in their hand. In yeah. fact, actually, some of the strategy books will tell you not even to play a hand without an ace in yeah. your hand. Yeah. I think it's a little too tight, but you have to assume the ace is out there. So that's one of the things that I like about. Um, Omaha 8, we don't say PLO 8 because I know you don't like that, but <laughs> Omaha 8 in general is that some of the puzzles or pieces of the puzzle are easier to put together because of that, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, sometimes you can figure out what people have based on whether the low card gets there and then they bet out. Um, but here, I'm always going to assume that my opponent has an ace and I'm going to be, you know, right a good chunk of the time here. So if I got Queen Jack here, even if he just has a naked ace right now, I'm very vulnerable to something coming up. You know, a deuce could come on the next card, and now I'm sunk, right? You know, the other thing, too, about now I'm mean, starting to rethink the... I I think I would call on the... I wouldn't do a min-raise either on the turn, because the only thing you're afraid of there is a flush, but you're hoping he really does have something like ace-queen and the board pairs the queen. You know, because then he thinks he's full... And he's got the better hand, and we were betting Broadway there, or or that we were calling for Broadway or something. I mean, the only thing you're afraid of there is a flush, but even yeah. the flush could still pair the board. That's probably a very good point. How do you think about it? Because if he has two pair, we run the risk of chasing him off of the raise. Although I doubt that would happen. Um, certainly, if he has clubs, 
Um, or or now, diamonds now too, because the term was another diamond. So yeah, yeah, but we're talking the flop right flop, now. Flop, yeah, so, but yeah, uh, if he's got clubs, we don't have clubs, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, we don't even have a club, so right. <laughs> it makes it even uh, more likely that he could have clubs. That I mean, again, we have redraws that too, but I'm not now. Now we're really forcing ourselves to get lucky on that. So yeah, there's there's a lot of danger there for us, um, and it might have been right just to you know take a twenty dollar flyer there in hindsight. And then, uh, not to extend it any longer, but pre-flop, he has ace, ace, king, nine, and double suited. You'd raise with that, even though it's PO8, right? You'd still raise with that. Um, yeah, well, we got some dead money in there, um, and we're in the cutoff, so it's a good position. I mean, again, aces are always going to be pretty big. Um, and they're double suited, too, and Broadway's in there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't like the nine in there. I don't like not having a low hand. But um, generally, when you have limpers in this game, it's because they've got kind of a middling two-way hand. Right. Generally, because if you have anything good, you're going to be raising. Um, so that indicates to me that more low cards are out, which indicates to me that it's less likely the low will get there, which the, this board end up showing us. Um so that's all the more reason I want to raise. Because um, again, when you have a, a one way hand, you got to play it fast. You got to get that money in early, particularly, I mean, a one way being the high. Yeah. Because there's always going to be a high that wins, it's not always going to be a low. So yeah. I can get lows to commit some to money now. And then, of course, when that flop comes, where it picks the lows, any smart lows with no chance of the high are going to get out there. Um, but if they have a middling high hand at that point with low, then I'm going to punch them more now. So, yeah. But, um, it's certainly not a hand I like, but but in that position with those limpers, um, I probably would have raised. I mean, what's ten? Probably would have potted it even maybe two, four, six, yeah, just to make it a little bit more painful for folks. And then at that point too, then I can shut out everybody else. I'm happy to have that hand against two two opponents. So what's? I think that is that. That ten dollar raise is is a one two game right? so that probably is a pot because it was oh, with two limpers right two limpers so if there's one two so there's three in the pot and then five then seven so he can call two and then make it yeah so you don't basically make yeah, it a pot probably true. yeah, yeah it's, it's close to making a pot anyway so all right cool this is Daniel Negreanu of FullContactPoker.com you're listening to Anti Up. All right, it's time for Hand of the Weeks and your hands are your situations. Podcast at AnnieUpMagazine.com. This week's prize is a 30-minute telephone lesson and workbook from Thomas Gallagher Casino Seminars, which specializes in poker odds and math at Poker911.net. And it's an ambassador show. This comes from our Mid-Atlantic ambassador, Mike Young, and it is a situation. So we'll be uh, running out here, and then we'll uh, probably take seven hours to talk about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, he says, hi, guys, I was playing um, at Maryland Live in the Live 500 event, $500 buy-in, $200 bounty, and I won my event to a satellite. Uh, we are mid-tournament. I have squiggly 50K in ships. Under the gun player shoves with 11K. I look down at pocket jacks and call. Folds around to a micro stack, less than uh, 1K, who also shoves. Ship leader in the small blind shoves with over 70k. I tank, thinking this guy is just trying to isolate, so I call. Cards are turned up. Small blind has king, king. Under the gun has ace, eight. Micro stack had king, queen. Well, I had a lot of chances. I didn't prove, and I was out. What would you have done? Well, here's the deal. I think you made the right play 
to help yourself to get out of a problem later and then you didn't get out of the problem later. Does that make sense? So I think by just calling that raise with the jacks was probably a good thing. I mean, sometimes I'll do that and I'll I'll re-raise just to isolate myself with the guy who shoved for 11K because I got a decent hand like jacks and hope nobody wakes up with a hand behind me. But you're so early in the hand that you know, there's so many players behind you, including what I think is that you said chip leader. So the chip leader could be someone who could be, hey, you know, but if your stack is roughly close to the chip leader, which it was, he's going to have to wake up with a hand there. Um, and so he did. And that's the problem there. So I, I think that we just called the 11K. It gave us a chance to get away from the hand. And when the chip leader, the chip leader at your table shoves, he's telling you, Hey, I'm I'm willing to risk your 50k and lose chip leader here, because I've got a hand that's really worth it here. So, I I don't think that 11k call was thought of by him as oh you're just calling with any two cards to try to knock this guy out. I think he knew you had a decent hand, because he wouldn't do that without a decent hand. I don't think he's going to do that and then turn over like seven seven. I think he's got a hand there. I think he need to fold those jacks. That's that's my gut on that because you made the right I think you, you gave yourself an opportunity to get away from it and you didn't get away from it alright so we're going to play hunt, uh, hunt for Red October here Okay. and I'm going to be Ramius and you're going to be Alec Baldwin and I'm going to say I read your book all of your assumptions were wrong <laughs> uh, I could not disagree more so see this is where it ends up turning into 7 hours right yep alright so here's how I look at this situation alright we have 50k I'm sorry squiggly 50k uh, the shove is 11k. General rule of thumb is to call off win. 10% of your stack, right? Uh-huh. Uh, this is more than 20% of our stack. So we are technically incorrect in making the call here. I think folding um, is way too tight for the pocket pair here. So I think our only option is to shove and isolate ourselves against this guy Again, going back to what you're... The one assumption that you made that I do agree with is that the small blind has to have a monster hand to call there. No one no one else is going to get involved... Or that guy's not going to get... No one who can knock us out of this tournament is going to get involved in this hand unless they have a monster. And the chances of having a monster are really thin, and we just, unfortunately, are the bug instead of the windshield this time, right? Right. So, if... If you run the scenario a million times, I'm going to say we're going to profit handsomely on this a lot of the times. Um, we just got unlikely that this one because now when we shove there, I mean that's 11k. That's going to increase our our um, our stack significantly there, um, and it's much easier to knock this player out uh, with only one hand rather than having to compete with other hands. Obviously, I don't mind if this you know little 1k pissy ant came along right that's fine but i certainly didn't want the um i I didn't want anybody in the 30k range to come along and i certainly didn't want the 70k to come along right right so if we shove there um i it doesn't change anything here i mean results oriented i I can't believe that the king is going to fold there but there is probably a a chance that he might i mean it's uh mid tournament i don't know you know it's tough to say. I mean, he's really going to put us on aces there to um, to fall, and the, and the 20k is going to be. I don't know what the blinds are at this point, so it's tough to say. Um, 
it, it would be a stretch to think that he's going to fold. But again, we're not playing that way. We're playing uh, you know long term success at the poker table, not in this particular hand. So uh, I, I clearly would have shoved here and would have had the same fate that uh, Mike did <laughs> because I think the king king is going to call. But uh, I think it, it, it's a much better play long term. Yeah, and you didn't completely disagree with me because I said in the beginning. Come on, you're destroying my movie reference. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Well, most of the time, though, I said when there's somebody, say, somebody or <laughs> some of these shoves, and I looked down at Jack Jack. A lot of times, I'm reshoving to isolate and hope I don't get, you know, called by someone who weighs up I mean, hand. It's a tough situation. To me. Right. I mean, you look down in that situation. You look down at Jack, and you're like, you're you're gonna like mumble some very nasty words on your breath, right? Right. Because you know what you need to do is what I just said, and you know that it's dangerous, and if somebody has things, now all of a sudden you're out when you had 50K in ships, which is, I would think, again, we don't know what the blinds are here, but pretty decent, right? Right. I I just, what I was trying to get at, what I was getting at was that the fact that he just called left him an option to fold. When they when they shoved on him it and he was going, so that was you know what I'm saying, right? That's what I'm saying. I didn't say that. Why well, the call isn't right in that? Yeah, you should have probably probably isolated yourself with this guy, and the odds of someone picking up a hand behind you aren't usually there with them. So it's the right move because, like you said, if if you if you worry about queens, kings, and aces every time you have Jackson shove, you know you're never going to play the game. Right. So yeah, the right move I think was to shove. You still would have lost. You had the same outcome, but the fact that you didn't shove at that point, now we got to do like a hand of the week and say, "All right, well, we're not doing what we would have done. We're doing what Mike did. What do we do in that situation?" I think I get away from the jacks there. Well, yeah, and I, I will say his big mistake, I think, was when he tanked and he decided this guy's trying to isolate. You're not trying to isolate for almost your entire stack, right? <laughs> right? You're doing that because you got a hand, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't fold kings here. Can I really fold kings here?" Right. Oh, uh, I mean, that, that's not a... Because at that point, you know... Uh, I mean, I guess there's some leverage he has on us there, right? Because we were just talking about how we, we could probably get away from this. But uh, I think most players are not going to be able to get away from from this. They're going to be exactly like Mike is and going to call. So I, I think that... that um, chip leader has to realize when he makes that move that there's a good chance that we're coming along as well too and he's putting a big chunk of his stack at risk and if he's willing to do that then he's got to feel pretty confident that he's making the right play and that's not with 10s, 9s or 8s or something else like that that we can beat yep, yep. I think the, the fact that you made a mistake early in our estimation lent you the opportunity to correct that mistake later True and that then so so yeah we would have shoved early likely because I do that all the time I looked at, you know I looked down at matter of fact it's funny it's Jacks too in the World Series that time right before the break and the guy told me it was SOL afterward yeah, yeah. it was the last hand before the break and I was I had pocket Jacks and a guy had five five to my right and I can't remember now if if he shoved and I call with Jack Jack or if he bet and I shoved with with Jacks and then he call because we were I was isolating him and he called and then he flopped the five on me which sucked but it was just like that I shoved to isolate him and I and it worked out nobody else called behind me I isolated him when, and I was an 80% favorite or whatever and then I got decimated um, had like 1500 left and went to dinner that that really really made me mad but it was the right move to shove there and isolate him and nobody behind me picked there was like four or five people maybe four people behind me left 
including the blinds, and uh, they didn't they didn't pick up any hands. So um, I you know I shoved on him because he was shorter than me, and it turned out to not work out. So yeah, I mean yeah, I think the right play there was to shove, and when you didn't shove, you could have gotten away from it, and you didn't. Because even if that guy, I mean if that guy doesn't wake up a king king, you know. I mean, you're still. I mean, I don't know what happened. Did he? Did he say what the other? Oh, it was uh, Ace Eight. He shoved with right. Ace Eight. Yeah. yeah. So you only dodge in one. Have dodge one card there. So. Ugh. Which makes me curious what the blinds were now that yeah. he shoved with Ace Eight under the gun, which is a hand is really vulnerable. You get called. So I got to think maybe blinds were five hundred a thousand. So he had like eleven k. Yeah, maybe. It's gonna be something like that, I think. Otherwise, it's just a really bad move. And I'm not so sure the microstack made a good call either. Even this, um, although I guess if again we're talking five hundred thousand, he's down to one, one bet. So. Right. Um, but yeah, if it was like two fifty five hundred, now that Ace Eight has twenty big blinds, that's definitely a bad move. And even the microstack with two bets, uh, I might find a better shot. Yeah, you gotta know for a better that. situation. And the other reason to fold too for for Mike here is even if you're right and you're ahead, you know you're racing like a bunch of cards, and you know because you've got a bunch of people who are in. Now one of them you have covered, the other one you basically have covered, and then the other guy has you covered. But I mean, you're still racing a bunch of people, and one of them is a chip leader. Yeah, I mean that's a very good point. Ted. You got to think that you are up against at least one ace, at least one king, at least one queen. Yeah, between the three, right? Yeah. So something any like of that. those any of those high cards come now you're you're gonna have to hit a two outer to recover from, um, and that's that's no fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's it, multi way pots with jacks. There's just if you can get away from it, you should. That's the way. No, I, I obviously I mean you're not gonna lose all your stack as long as you beat the the big blind. Um, so that's another way of looking at it, I guess too. So you know, right? It's just. When it got back to him, he knew that there was one person that could hurt him a little bit, one person who can eliminate him, and then he's racing in other cards too that would take some of the money away from him. You know, I mean, there's just so many contributing cards here that he has to beat to make this a really good profitable play, and one of them can make him lose. And right, well, I guess that, that's what I'm saying. Though, is as long as he if he loses to everybody else, but he beats the small blind, he makes 40k. Right. Right, which is doubling his chip stack so really it really you know we went back to what I said you're up against an ace a king or queen blah 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 but really you're only up against whatever the small blind has which of course is probably the strongest hand and uh, yeah now, the, the, the his action right that is that they probably have each other's cards so it's less likely that they're going to come out and more likely your jacks would hold up so that's another way of looking at it I guess yeah well I want to I want to thank our ambassadors for providing a lot of content more over and above the call of duty <laughs> appreciate it very much very good situation there i'm chris casenza and i'm scott long we'll see you at the tables anti-up is a production of antiupmagazine.com contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344 if you'd like to advertise send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335 some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the podsafe music network 